Chapter Two of the Autobiography of Moncure D. Conway, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. In my second year, my father purchased a large farm and homestead two miles out of Falmouth called Inglewood, and it is there that my remembrance begins. Through life, it has remained with me as a lost bower, and the only house I ever built bedford park london bore that name inglewood virginia was a two-storied frame house with a long veranda opening on two acres of sward and flowers enclosed by an evergreen hedge beyond the hedge on one side was an orchard of white heath peaches on the other many varieties of apples in our fields grew melons in the woods huckleberries chinquapins hickory nuts and indeed i can think of no charm wanting to our little avalon my brother peyton two years my senior and myself had the freedom of the adjacent farms sherborne residence of a spinster cousin sarah daniel and glencairn home of a beloved uncle and aunt richard moncure whose wife was my father's sister their many children being our constant playmates but before all the playmates i remember the comely coffee-coloured face of my nurse maria humstead nearly always laughing as if i were a joke her affection was boundless and her notions of discipline undeveloped come mon fess your faults and an outbreak of laughter were all that met my infant mischief my father and uncle richard moncure united in providing a teacher for us miss elizabeth gaskins a niece of grandfather conway to this gracious lady who instructed me five years i owe much her school was held for a time in my father's office in our garden the earliest incident in my memory is of my father and uncle richard visiting my school i was lifted to a table and read sentences from a primer the praise they gave me and our teacher's kiss planted a new fruit in our paradise i was then probably in my fifth year then a log schoolhouse was built halfway between inglewood and glencairn my next remembrance is seeing my new-born sister mildred who was born january twenty fifth eighteen thirty seven my more consecutive memories begin with a tragical day in eighteen thirty eight when from the schoolhouse window we saw inglewood wrapped in flames my parents were at the house of a neighbor the only member of our family in the house was my year-old sister whom our nurse maria deposited in a field remote from danger the house was reduced to ashes we then moved into falmouth where my father bought the residence afterwards known as conway house it is a brick house fronting the rappahannock the largest residence in falmouth it was built by a mr voss of dutch family and the wallpaper in the drawing-room was a continuous scene of Rotterdam, with a canal in which women were washing clothes, 
children playing beside it, and barges plying on it. This decoration lasted until the house was used as a war hospital, 1862 through 1865. At the back, the house opened through porches on a flower garden, embowered with aspens and fig trees, there being also a superb Judas tree. Beyond the outhouse, the vegetable garden, bordered with box and myrtle, extended to a succession of steep terraces, with midway an arbor of roses, morning glories, and honeysuckle, the haunt of hummingbirds. These terraces were relics of fortifications built in 1675 against the Aborigines, this being the origin of Falmouth. The military heritage of this little town was displayed a hundred years after its foundation. It was the first place in Virginia to raise a company against Great Britain. Three score years later, the colonial belligerency survived only in parades of little boys in blue and white with wooden guns on the hill above our terraces. Alas, how many of them reached manhood only to be laid in the Confederate cemetery? A sister was born and named Catherine Washington. She lived only ten days. My mother sent for me to come to her bedside and tried to explain the mysterious event. I remember vividly her pale face on the pillow, her tears, and her effort to make me comprehend. My father did not part with Inglewood Farm. We continued to go out there to school, walking the two miles each way daily. We were accompanied by a mulatto youth, Charles Humstead, handsome, brilliant, merry, with an inexhaustible store of stories and songs, this colored genius was the most romantic figure of our little world. Along the pathway, through the woods, his snares and hair-gums were set, and rarely failed of their prey. A meadow we had to cross was the haunt of moccasin-snakes, and his skill in slaying these dragons guarding our tree of knowledge was wonderful. That, indeed, was his main function. Advancing ahead of us, stick in hand, treading warily with his bare feet, his eye could not be cheated by the deadly reptile's mimicry of clay, nor did he fail to strike the point on its back that left it helpless. Charles knew all serpent lore. The tail would not die until sunset, or until it thundered. If rain was needed, he hung the snake on a tree. In studying the myths of Indra, thunderer and rain-giver, and of the drouth serpent Ahi, I have often remembered those bits of the oriental fable rehearsed by our colored comrade in the woods of Virginia. But, alas, we had to part from Charles. He found our little town dull and the devil tempted him in the form of a rusty fire-engine which had remained in its dismantled shanty many years. It occurred to Charles, aged seventeen, that it would be fun to see the engine work, and he set fire to a dilapidated outhouse nearby. Although this small house was not in use, nor near any other, it was claimed that sparks from it might have reached dwellings, 
and the alternatives for Charles were a severe, possibly capital punishment. Much to the sorrow of our household, Charles was carried away, this being the only instance of my father's selling a servant. After the war, I made inquiries for Charles without result, and believe he would have returned to Falmouth had he been living. Falmouth is a picturesque town, seated amid heights crowned with pretty homesteads, and contained then about a thousand people. It may be a survival of local pride that prevents my calling it a village. About twenty families might have been described fifty years ago as belonging to the old gentry. Their houses, though not grand, were pretty, with tasteful interiors and beautiful gardens. Several families were wealthy, the Croesus being Basil Gordon, who came from Scotland a poor boy and became the richest man in Virginia. This Basil Gordon, who resided next door to us, was the most picturesque figure of that region. To the end of his life he wore the powdered wig and queue, ruffled shirt, flowing white cravat, dress coat, knee breeches, shoe buckles. He had, in youth, set up a small store for the sale of various articles, and earned enough money to purchase wheat brought in long bonneted wagons from the rich Piedmont region. He had made it into flour in the Falmouth Mill, and shipped it on the Rappahannock for England. When a fortune was thus made, his family wished him to give up the tiny shop, but he kept it in order to give enjoyment to his many young relatives who had to be started in business. It was a practical joke among the wags to watch the hour when the old gentleman visited the store and the clerks were off at his large warehouses to go in and call for some trifle, such as a half pound of sugar or coffee, which the venerable millionaire would weigh out with gravity and dignity. His only daughter, Anne, was a famous beauty and married Dr. John Hanson Thomas of Baltimore. The greater part of Basil Gordon's fortune was inherited by his eldest son, Douglas, an intellectual man, who was friendly to me in my boyhood. Basil Gordon was well acquainted with Mary Washington, and I was told that he had been a pallbearer at her funeral. Also, that when her monument was to be erected at Fredericksburg, he identified the spot where she was buried. Recently, however, when the quaint and pretty monument of 1832, the most interesting in Virginia, was destroyed by sentimental vandals from other states to make way for an ugly obelisk, the grave was dug into and no trace of any burial or remains found. So that the exact grave of Washington's mother remains unknown. Falmouth had a rough corner, owing to a superabundance of whiskey. On Saturdays, when it was congested by country folk, we were not permitted to go into that part. Many of the country folk had to depend on the sobriety of their horses or mules to carry them home. My father, presiding justice of Stafford County, was a total abstainer and a prohibitionist long before the main law was heard of. 
he made an impressive appeal to his fellow magistrates in court to stop the sale of strong liquors just after a drunken man trying to draw water from a well fell in and was drowned but the era of paternal legislation had not arrived our region swarmed with these so-called poor whites largely descended i always believe from the convict and contract laborers imported from great britain in colonial times gradually supplanted by slaves left without occupation they squatted where they could and lived as they could they became expert in fishing and hunting and their skill in shooting made them good soldiers in the confederate war as concerned their means they were more benefited by defeat than they could have been by triumph much more benefited than were the poor negroes with the abolition of unpaid labor their opportunity for employment returned moreover many of the gentry became poor whites also and that phrase is heard no more it was always a phrase forbidden in genteel families for these poor whites had votes and i remember a campaign in which my father's candidate democratic for the legislature was nearly defeated because he my father had said the masses will follow their leaders party spirit ran high in stafford county where the majority of well-to-do gentlemen were whigs the majority of voters democrats i remember exciting scenes in falmouth during the presidential campaign of eighteen forty which resulted in defeat of the democrats the democratic candidate was martin van buren an aristocratic knickerbocker while the whigs had this time the advantage of a candidate william henry harrison who though of the old virginia gentry had migrated in early life to the west and there resided in a log cabin that log cabin was the ace with which the whigs trumped the democracy in our county the cabin was blazoned everywhere when the grandson of that whig president the late benjamin harrison was a candidate nothing was said of his grandfather's cabin but much of the harrison pedigree the party contests were accompanied by bonfires mass meetings and barbecues the children were warm partisans of their parental preferences and many a faggot did i add to the polk and dallas bonfire of eighteen forty four james knox polk thus became president though we democratic boys of falmouth frankly admitted that in securing this victory we received aid from adjacent parts of the nation the defeated candidate was the famous henry clay i remember soon afterwards observing on grandfather conway's wall a framed letter written to him by henry clay whom he esteemed above all other statesmen it was a momentous discovery that the two men i honored most father and grandfather were antagonistic in a great issue however they were both lukewarm in politics my father had once been the party leader and represented stafford in the virginia legislature but one such experience was enough 
he declined a second candidature and contented himself with insisting on the nomination of competent men he was offered in youth a place at west point but declined it and in later life declined an offer at high office in washington my father a tall and handsome man was universally esteemed and singularly free from ambition his integrity and prudence caused him to be burdened by the estates bequeathed to his administration and the families left to his guardianship in youth he had been gay much in demand at card parties and dances he was particularly beloved by his patent grandparents and mingled in the festivities of tesculum but there was among the pious negroes a story which indicated that his grandmother Peyton could not rest quiet in her grave because of the gaiety of P, as she called him, which she had encouraged. Once, so our oldest negro told me, when he, Mars Peyton, was returning in the night from a frolic and riding past the graveyard, his grandmother came out and walked beside him some distance, entreating him to become religious. The old lady herself was not confirmed until she was sixty, and her children were never confirmed at all. Of course, I never mentioned this tale to my father, who scorned every superstition not found in the Bible. That a gay and handsome youth of high social position should all at once unite himself to the poor and ignorant Methodists, of course, implied a miracle. But I have a notion that the ghost story had been gradually transferred and developed from an incident grandfather conway related to us of himself while studying law with judge james henry of fleets bay he was sent on a horseback journey to stafford courthouse his journey was broken at an inn where in the early morning before he had risen he saw a young lady pass through his room and vanish at the courthouse he was invited by dr peyton to meet the judge and lawyers at his house in the evening when he entered there stood the lady of his vision daughter of his host i knew at once that she was to be my wife and there he would add pointing to grandmother there she sits grandmother was apt to add some playful explanation if any lady was influential in my father's conversion she was not from a graveyard but was miss margaret eleanor daniel who became his wife her father died while serving as army surgeon in the war of 1812 leaving her to the care of her stepmother an amiable lady whom i well remember who placed her under the care of john lewis of langolin my mother's uncle by marriage who trained young men for college he supervised her education with care but his wife my mother's aunt was a tyrannous calvinist my mother told me that she was kept in a sort of hothouse by presbyterianism and when her precocious soul revolted against the dogma of predestination it was decided that she was ill and must be bled calvin was thus surviving in virginia 
and still demanded the blood of all gainsayers. It may readily be understood that she would not be suffered to wed a gay and worldly youth, and also that falling in love with a pious young lady would naturally sober such a youth. At the time of my parents' marriage, May 28, 1829, the Episcopal Church was nearly defunct in our Overlorton parish. Of its three churches, Potomac, Achaia, and Cedar Church in Falmouth, the former had fallen into ruin. Achaia was without regular services, and Cedar Church turned into a grain storehouse, ultimately swept away by a freshet. The Methodists occupied the county, and preachers were sent by the Baltimore Conference. At these camp meetings, eloquent preachers from the cities assisted, and under one of these orators, my father was converted. His father was so shocked that a son should be carried away by what he regarded as vulgar fanaticism, that a stormy scene ensued, and my father, who had barely reached his majority, left the paternal house. Grandfather speedily repented of his anger, but this touch of martyrdom brought to my father's side three of his sisters and two of his brothers. Thus it was that our family became Methodist, the first of good social position in our region belonging to that sect. My mother gladly embraced the Arminian faith of the Methodists, and used to quote with merry approval the Negro hymn, I never found no peace nor rest till I joined the Methodists. My grandfather, John Moncure Conway, was for 47 years clerk of Stafford County. He had, in advanced years, abandoned the queue, but always wore a blue dress coat with brass buttons, a ruffled shirt front, and an ample white cravat, with ends flowing through a large gold ring. His house, airlessly, at Stafford Courthouse, had a carefully kept flower garden in front, and a mile beyond it was his large well-stocked farm, where he liked to stroll before breakfast. On it was a wonderful dog that recognized any alien hog or sheep strayed into his herds, and drove it off. He was glad to take me with him on his early walks, and his talk was always instructive. In his office was framed a fine engraving of Conway Castle, Wales, an heirloom brought from England by his American ancestors. He was a perfect domestic character, and regarded with boundless affection by his children and grandchildren. My grandparents had thirteen children, of whom eight had families. My grandmother, nay, Catherine Stork Peyton, was to her numerous grandchildren the queen of the whole world. When any school holiday came, the joy of it was that they were to go to Eresley, and how so many children were packed away at night is inexplicable. On one side of the house was a playground. We had our supper in summer under the apple trees, griddle cake and molasses, bonny clabber, preserves. Our aunts attended us, and nearby sat Grandma, tall, stately, 
eyes sparkling with humour, her head crowned with a snowy turban, clasped with a ruby and a rose. My grandfather's first love was for Agnes Conway Moncure, but these lovers were double first cousins, and their elders regarded the consanguinity as too close for marriage. Agnes married John Robinson, clerk of the circuit court of Richmond. Affectionate relations between the Robinsons and my Conway grandparents continued to their death, and I was told by a relative that whenever Mrs. Robinson visited her Moncure relatives in Stafford County, my grandmother used to find some pretext for sending her husband over to the place of her sojourn without accompanying him. He must stay away a day or two while she got the house ready for Mrs. Robinson's visit. The Honorable Henry Clay was in youth a deputy clerk under John Robinson. The school taught by cousin Betty Gaskins became large, various neighbors being permitted to send their children. I could not mingle quite freely with either boys or girls. My brother Peyton and I were the only Methodist children, and even in my eighth year I was precocious enough to feel that I had a soul. This poor little soul shrank from the careless frolic of my playmates, who no doubt regarded me as a milksop. But I had the compensation of the special friendship of my aunt, Harriet Eustace Conway, only four years my senior, to whom the whole school looked up. She died early, and is enshrined in my memory as a perfectly beautiful being. My parents, well-read in Methodist theology, held strong views against fatalism. But there is a fatality also in the free-will faith. It involves being constantly looked after. The Presbyterian children, whose conduct and destiny were already fixed, enjoyed more freedom than we who were every moment determining our eternal weal and woe. We were under a rigid regime, two sermons every Sunday besides Sunday school, and only strictly religious reading permitted on that day, even the fourth page of the Christian Advocate being prohibited because it was literary and scientific. Our small affairs, actions, words were ascribed everlasting importance and we lived under the suspended sword of Judgment Day. The basement of my father's house in Falmouth was fitted up for evening prayer meetings, which were held there twice every week. They were usually conducted by the town tailor and local preacher, James Petty. I find the scene engraved in my memory, this fine intellectual father of mine, accustomed to preside over courts and the refined, elegantly dressed lady beside him, surrounded by poor, dusty, patched people of whom some could hardly read. My father had no interests to subserve by this devotion to an humble faith, no clients to gain, no votes to seek. His office was not elective. His interests were all the other way, 
for the preachers were supported and the meeting-houses built mainly out of his purse some of those gathered in the basement he had picked up out of the ditch they looked up to him with reverence but in humility he surpassed them all somehow i to this day think of my handsome father's appearance as noblest when seated among those dingy and illiterate people my mother was musical and had a fine soprano voice i too developed early a taste and some voice for singing it was through the beautiful methodist hymns that religious feeling reached me as i sang in the basement second treble to my mother i dreamed of the distant beauties of palestine though the cedars of lebanon were thick on our falmouth hills and no rose of sharon ever equalled those of our garden the wondrous judas tree at our door and our fig trees myrtles fireflies meadows crystal streams all the materials of a paradise were around me while i sang of things far off and never to be attained End of chapter two